Welcome, listeners, to the NK News podcast recorded here in Seoul on July 25th, 2018. I am your host, Jacko Zwetslut. Joining me today in the studio is Peter Ward, and we're going to be talking about economy and economic change and the price of fish in North Korea. Once again, NK News is offering a free year's subscription to one reviewer who reviews our podcast, not only at iTunes, but also at other platforms. And you can save $50 off your nknews.org subscription by using the code podcast at the checkout. Don't forget, if you like this podcast, please share it with others so that our listenership will grow. And for our listeners who are not watching this on the video live stream, I'm doing this podcast shirtless because it's really hot here in Seoul this summer. Peter Ward is a North Korea researcher, just about to graduate with a master's degree from Seoul National University in sociology with a thesis dissertation on the North Korean fishing industry. He earlier received a BA in Korean history from Korea University. He currently writes analysis for NK Pro. That's our a part of the uh, the NK News umbrella. And just last week, he returned from a three-week trip to the north, and we're going to learn a little bit about what he saw there. So, Peter, when I was young, we used to say in Australia, what's that got to do with the price of fish? Which I think was probably just a nicer way of saying, so what? Or, yeah, and? Uh, but your MA thesis has something to do with the price of fish, or the price of fish has something to do with the North Korean economy. Please, What's it all got to do with the price of fish? Uh, well, you know, uh, who ultimately decides wh what the price of fish is uh, and who profits from uh, fish? So who is making the money out of, the, uh, out of fish sales? And in the 1970s and 1980s, it, uh, the price of fish was controlled by the state at every single level. You know, from the docks themselves all the way to the plate, it was controlled by the state. But from the late 80s, that system started to break down and prices began to be set by individuals who began to trade in fish and by captains who also became started to become independent or quasi-independent from the state. So they started to sell their own produce and uh, fishermen started to sell their own produce too. And this started on the far, far sidelines of the economy in every sector. And in some sectors, you know, prices continue to be set by the center and the center still maintains a great deal of control. But in place in the fishing industry and in other sectors, in other food sectors and in other parts of the economy, prices are increasingly being set by producers and by traders. Were prices originally set in monetary terms or in terms of uh, ration coupons or something like that? That's a, good, that's a very good question. Uh, both. There is a controversy in, uh, in, in economics or in the study of, com of economic systems as to whether uh, money and under socialism has, mm. has an active or a passive role. Right. And we know that Andrei Lankov, for example, has written uh, a number of times that uh, money essentially had no value in North Korea, um, at least in the early decades. Right. What uh, Andrei, um, that's what Professor Lankov would argue, is that uh, for the average North Korean consumer, what matters is uh, the allocation you received from the state and mm. that was given in coupons it wasn't given in money right and would that also be true for uh, buying and selling fish from from the ship to the plate as it were my understanding is yes it was all done through administrative orders so the okay. state so the state would order that the uh, the the fishing trawler hand over the fish to the wholesale like the wholesaler yeah the wholesale middle the wholesale middleman which was also controlled by the state and the middleman then direct the uh, fish to the shops mm -hmm. where it was to be sold and it wasn't really sold at all it was given to the consumer or given to the yeah, customer who had the coupon the coupons were issued by the state, of course. Uh, but now you're saying it's more of a... Is, is it really... Is it market 
market forces? Can we call it that? You've got to decide what what market forces are. Mm-hmm. Market supply and demand from my uh, year ten economics textbook. Well, that's exactly what it is. Yeah, as in, uh, and that's the case in many sectors of the economy. In fact, the state has basically ordered that every sector of the economy, to some extent, mm-hmm. utilize market forces. Uh, is that a, a a result of or an unintended consequence of the public distribution system having broken down in the nineteen nineties? In consumer goods, yes, but uh, in the defense sector, for instance, if you so I, for my for my sins, one of my hobbies is reading North Korean official publications. Mm. And while I was in the North this it's time, it's a big sin. It's a big sin. Uh, well, technically speaking, it's probably illegal uh, under some South Korean law to even read this stuff. But uh, you know, one of the things I read recently, which was which was so exciting, I ran down the stairs to the bookshop to try mm. and buy my own copy of it because it was my friend's magazine. Uh, was that the state has issued rules in the last couple of years? Uh, Ordered and said to enterprises that there are no limits to where uh, market forces can be utilized so long as it agrees with the state's objectives. When you say no limits, do you mean no sectors of the economy are untouched? By market forces. So the state has said, uh, so it doesn't call them market forces, it calls them order contracts. And order contracts Ah. involve uh, state-owned enterprises setting their own prices uh, in consultation with consumers. Uh, And consumers can be other factories, consumers can be shops, consumers can be literally you and me. It says that there should be no limits on where order contracts can be used. They can be used in every sector of the economy. Now, is that a deliberate, um, using that term order contracts, is that a deliberate choice to avoid using terms like market force or supply and demand? They increasingly do talk about supply and demand as being important in price setting. And it's more prominent now than it's ever been in their uh, discourse. But yes, they don't use markets. And they don't use the word market very much. They use it a bit, but not as, anywhere near as much as we would. Um, mm. And they avoid they would avoid terms like market forces. Now, in the fish market then, so back to the price of fish. We, we've heard that in North Korea, you've got obviously the North Korean official currency, but there's also people dealing in hard currencies. So that'll be uh, sort of a combination of US dollars, euro, and Chinese renminbi. Uh, how does that work in the fish market? Is it all correct? in one? Is it a mixture of different uh, currencies? Is it one for the wholesale and one for the retail? My understanding is uh, of late, in the last 10 years at least since the currency reform, most large wholesale transactions are handled in foreign currency. So when you're dealing in large amounts of product, generally speaking now, since the currency reform, uh, foreign currency is preferred. Before that, no. Uh, there was no of, there was no, there was no like sort of blanket preference, but since the currency reform, and I mean now, state-owned enterprises are encouraged to use foreign currency if needed, as in state-owned enterprises now are allowed. At least most state-owned enterprises are now allowed to have foreign currency bank accounts and can engage in foreign currency transactions with one another. Yeah, so so foreign currency bank accounts in a North Korean bank, correct, is now a, a legal thing. Legal. How recent is that? Uh, it, it dates to 2014, so far as I know. Wow. Uh, I, I, I read it actually at the airport a couple of days ago. I found it in one of their publications. Yeah. It's all well and good hearing rumors. It's all well and good hearing it from a number of reliable sources. But when they admit it yep. openly in their own publications, that's a big deal. In 1984, so they were trying to introduce what was called the Industrial Combines Reform, and they were debating you know, what size enterprises should be. You know, they were, Basically, the idea was you'd create larger enterprises, which would be easier to manage and easier uh, would, would find it easier to interact with one another. Anyway, there's a lot of reasons why they were doing it. But one of the proposals put forward was that enterprises, especially trade enterprises, would be able to trade with each other in foreign currency. And Kim Il-sung directly vetoed this. And he said in a speech that this represented a violation of, st- a re- violation of state sovereignty. And I- now it's part of the system. That's and they openly admit it. Wow. Um, have you heard or read uh, any stories or seen any evidence yet that uh, 
that a North Korean with one of these bank accounts can just go to an ATM uh, with a card and pull out some US dollars? Is that, is, that, is that a real thing or am I imagining it too far here? So North Koreans, um, I've heard stories, North Koreans do use foreign currency in shops. Right. But that, I mean, they might just hold it in cash under their mattress, right? But it, to actually have it in a bank account and then coming out through an ATM, that'd be a different story, wouldn't it? So there aren't, I've only, I only saw one ATM in the country and that was at the airport and it wasn't working. I can say that I think that uh, the state has a plan for this and it's for about the last, I don't know how long they've been trying to do this, but I imagine since the early 2000s is my understanding. You park your money on in uh, foreign currency bank accounts, or rather you park them in foreign currency payment mechanisms like the Nare card mm-hmm. or the Kumgil card, which is newer. It's issued by the Daesung Bank. The These card. are prepaid, uh, sort of like you, you load up money onto a card and then you, you spend it until it's down to zero and you, you load it up again, right? Right. So um, you take your foreign currency and you park it on one of those cards. That's the idea. Whether they also have foreign currency, whether the average citizen is also encouraged to have foreign currency bank accounts, I've not seen any direct references to that. Maybe they are. Maybe they are. Now, having um, having this go on, I mean, this must imply a certain level of trust in North Korea's uh, banks and state institutions. Tell us a bit about the uh, the failed currency reform, or, or at least the effects of the, the last currency reform and how people reacted to that. Well, I can only tell you what is already widely known. I don't research it myself. I can tell you what researchers say, which is basically that it was uh, catastrophic for sort of medium level like uh, capitalists in the system. So, you know, the pe- the really, really big people uh, who were making a lot of money were fine because they held most of their money in foreign currency. So people who owned, you know, a couple of you know, people who owned four or five ships are probably fine. Right. But people who, you know, were successful wholesale dealers and were just dealing in fish, yeah. um, you know, maybe you know, smaller scale successful wholesaler dealers, you know, I've got a couple of freezers at home kind of thing in the fish market. Or, you know, you know, if you're a garment trader, then you've got, you know, several, you know, you're, you've got a pile of clothes, you've got, you know, you've got, you've got a, you've got a whole room dedicated to clothing, but you don't have like your own warehouse. Those people were wiped out by the currency reform because they had massive like domestic currency holdings, most of which they were not allowed to exchange, right? So right. there's a very set limit on the amount of money you could exchange. So the effect was that people who already had a lot of foreign currency, uh, were rewarded, and people who didn't have a lot of foreign currency were encouraged to use foreign currency for their holdings of cash in future. Was that an un- unintended consequence of, I mean, did the government want this? I think that what they wanted to do was take expropriate the nouveau riche and give the money to the working class. And you can see that in, you know, the industrial working class, as it were, who they thought were, who they think of as being their, you know, support base. Mm. So what they did was they tried to expropriate these people who had this large pile of cash at home. And they're still very concerned about the fact that there are large cash holdings which are not in state banks and which are not in state-owned enterprises. And they talk about it a lot. What they did was um, try and expropriate uh, these uh, sort of, like, uh, capitalists or whatever they would call them and direct those funds towards people who they consider to be their support base and for a little while it worked right so uh, to start with you know you had this massive wage hike as well and workers were able to you know go to the local market or go to the local you know uh, shop and buy buy stuff that they'd not been able to buy but before too long inflation wiped out most of the gains so wait let's just go back a step who is the support base of the north korean government from the North Korean government's perspective, the main people it has to worry about, I suppose, are workers who don't have real jobs in industrial uh, in the industrial you know economy. You know their factories are not able to you know obtain supplies and not able to produce something which has any value on in the North Korean markets or in overseas markets. These are the people they have to worry about, and they were worried about them back in the late two thousands at least. Less so, I think now, but. 
that's at least who they were targeting back in the late 2000s. But other people who I talked to uh, would say that um, you know the, the real support base of the North Korean government are the uh, either, either the nouveau riche or uh, or the you know the donju, you know, the people with the money, the elites. Uh, that if they lose the support of those people. Um, then the state is in is is teetering on the brink of disaster. I would agree with that. I would just say. So that are there two are there two support bases? I would just I was not trying to imply that the people who they were trying to help in two thousand nine were necessarily the people who actually maintain the system. So maybe that's uh, maybe maybe I misphrased that. Now you've recently, as I said, you've come back from three weeks in North Korea. What did you see that is relevant or useful to your economic research? Um, just that the system that is described in uh, in their laws and in their official publications does seem to be does seem to have been implemented and people are not scared about talking about it it's not a it's not a secret that order contracts are everywhere mm. and it's not a secret that um, competition is everywhere domestic enterprises are encouraged vigorously to com- compete with one another and you go to shops and you see lots of different uh, you know competing products uh, you know many different brands of soft drink for instance or many different brands of tin fish and it's all on display and you can talk you can mention it to people and it's not it's not something people are ashamed of if anything it's it's the new system uh, so many aspects of the new system are openly discussed even with people like me were you able to visit a market a changmadang even the Tongil Shijang in Pyongyang. Actual residents, uh, foreign residents of Pyongyang can go to Tongil market. They can also sometimes go to other markets. Uh, obviously, we drove past them. We stopped outside one uh, in, in off hours because it's very near a place we were going to see. In fact, we stopped, part, we stopped outside two at various different times. Mm-hmm. Past, I saw three. Um, but I didn't go inside any of them. But, you know, they look like department stores. You know, as in my image of a North Korean market is, you know, sort of rather ramshackle. So these are not stores? They're like department stores. They look like department stores, from the outside at least. They're very impressive, look, nice buildings. Mm. And that dates from the mid-2000s, the early to mid-2000s. And the state, I have actually seen official references to why they did it. Uh, while I was in the country, I was reading a book, which you can't obtain outside the country, but it's not secret. It was on a bookshelf. I have not been able to find it since I left the country. But I saw um, an entry on this whole Sangjamhua, uh, is what they call it in Korean, which is like literally creation of like shopization. Or, yes. Like the shopization. And they explained... It doesn't. It's interesting when the North Koreans don't want to describe something that is... They want to talk about something, a sensitive topic, but they don't... They want to be... It, it, when they want to talk about it, but they don't want to say anything that could be incriminating, they just talk about it in general terms, right? So um, they talked about why something like shopization would be done. And they explained it was for hygiene purposes, it was to bring create order, etc. So for those of us who are trying to understand the North economy as it functions today, where should we begin? Um, you've got to ask who sets the prices and you've got to ask who, who, who makes the money. You know, as in a lot of people think of North Korea's economy as primarily being designed to uh, serve the Kim family. And yeah, you know, I'm not going to deny that the Kim family have a very extractive and rather brutal or uh, a very extractive and brutal regime. And the economy does serve their interests to some extent. But there is a lot of money in that country that is not going directly into the coffers of the Kim family regime at all. You know, it's going into the coffers of the Tonju, you know, and people who work for them. There are people below the Tonju who are also doing well. And yeah, they have to make compulsory donations to the state and the party, you know, and yeah, they have to pay taxes. But there's a lot of tax evasion in North Korea. There's a lot of people doing well who aren't, you know, directly serving the Kim family regime by doing well. 
part of the cash economy, is it, sort of under the table? Yeah. Um, so one of the obsessions of the regime, uh, even under Kim Jong-un, is trying to f- get that money f- out from underneath people's beds and out from underneath the counter and park it in state banks. They're absolutely obsessed with it. And they've been obsessed with it for a long time, but they're taking far more radical measures than they did before. And that would explain also the foreign currency bank accounts too, wouldn't it? It explains the current foreign currency bank accounts. It explains the fact that uh, state-owned enterprises are now legally allowed to take loans direct from private citizens, which amounts to, you know, the admit the admission that a private financial market exists. You know, as in there are people who can loan state-owned enterprises money. And that is not only that is admitted, it's recognized and it's accepted. We don't un, we don't know anything about the rules that surround such practices, but they are legal now. Uh, maybe we'll hear something soon or maybe I've missed something, but so far as I know, all we have is oblique references. So the Enterprise Act and the Farm the Farms Act, both of 2014, revised, amended in 2014, both include references to farms and state-owned enterprises being permitted to take so-called unused cash of residents direct and use it, uh, mobilize and utilize it. Yeah. So as, as I understand from you then that uh, the economic changes that have occurred under Kim Jong-un represent uh, a dual attempt by the state to cohabit with market forces on the one hand, but also maintain and even strengthen state control over the uh, over the surplus which is generated. I think it's, a, yeah, it's, a, it's as an accurate summary as I've been able to yeah, achieve so far. So now you've mentioned that enterprises now have rights to set their own prices and decide what to buy and who to buy it from. So they're no longer told a clothing manufacturer, you must buy your textiles from this factory and you must source it to this department store. They can decide all these things now. So outside of the uh, state's five-year economic strategy, enterprises of all kinds are allowed to engage in uh, creating their own plans, creating their own indicators. They still use all of this Marxist, Leninist, Stalinist jargon which they should. Mm. Um, But yes, they're allowed to create their own plans, their own indicators, set their own prices, find their own customers. And that's all down to them. Inside that five-year economic plan, uh, five-year economic strategy, which they're currently implementing, you have the indicators which the state has already drawn up and those need to be achieved, uh, you know, through all of the transactions and all of that stuff in the same way as before. But when additional supplemental targets are required and additional supplemental things are added, you can yet again use market, you know, market transactions and you can engage in all of the things that you just mentioned. So we don't know. The issue is we don't know the line between the five-year economic strategy, uh, the amount of the economy, which uh, the amount of GDP, which is taken up by that five-year economic strategy, and the amount of the economy or the amount of GDP that is taken up by enterprises making their own decisions. We don't know. Okay. So there's still a dual track then. Absolutely. Right. Um, now, why did, I'm interested in why you said that uh, they, they should still use Marxist uh, words and phrases. So six years ago, I wrote a, a column for Asia Times, and I'm still very proud of it. But I basically said that, you know, if, if, if the North Koreans want to reform their economy, they're going to have to reform it whilst trying to make it sound like they're not reforming their economy. And that's exactly what they're doing. You have to use the same jargon. You have to make it sound like nothing is changing or things are changing, you know, things are changing in line with what has already happened. You can't, you know, you can't, you know, Kim Jong-un and Park Bong-ju can't wake up one morning and say, ah, this socialism business, bunch of crap, you know, let's go for capitalism. They can't do that. They're limited by by the uh, the ideological framework that's sort of the uh, and the burden of the past, should we say they're limited by the burden of the so past. So you're talking about the messaging that they give to their people rather than the actual substance of it. So Absolutely. it's a socialist in form, uh, capitalist in content. Would that be uh, an accurate summary there? Uh, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Now, why then can't they go the way of China with reforming their economy? 
I, I, well, maybe they will. Um, you know, you look- but China has said, uh, you know, um, Mao was great in. Uh, I, there was a, even a number. I can't remember what it was now. Like uh, 70, Mao was, 30. Thank you. Mao was right in seventy, wrong in thirty. So they were able to not be so burdened by the past, and even use words like reform, which uh, you'll agree in North Korea. You can use word like measures, but you never say the word reform. You never say opening. Tell me why that is. What's different between North Korea and China? Back in the 1980s, Kim Il-sung and Kim Jong-il, who were basically, until the late 80s, father and son, right? But they were, until the late 80s, it looks like they were both in charge of the country. Mm. Um, And they debated and seriously considered um, reforming the country and decided against it. And when they decided against it, they started uh, referring to the word reform as being a swear word. Mm. And especially as the Soviet Union started to reform, it became more and more of a swear word in uh, North Korean uh, ideological discourse. So the use of the terms, especially reform, but I think opening too, would be, they're just absolutely taboo. And they remain taboo today. Uh, If you, you know, you read North Korean newspapers, you'll see reform referenced when it is, in quotation marks and in extremely derisory context. Mm. So that's why they won't use those terms. why though? Why are they bound, bounded by this history in a way that China was not? It's a family regime. It's a dynasty. And the man in charge now obtains his legitimacy partially through his bloodline. Uh, there are some things that Kim's can do and no one else can. Um, so to say, so if Kim Jong-un were to say, as the Chinese did, look, my granddad was right in 70% wrong and 30%. Are you saying that he would undercut some of his own legitimacy? I think he probably thinks so. Yeah. Mm. Whether he's right or not, I don't know. Maybe he doesn't think so, but I, yeah, I think so, yeah. And what about the existence of, uh, of a competing state in South Korea? Does that also present a challenge to actually doing reforms in North Korea? Yeah, well, Andre would say so. So Dr. Lankoff, Professor Lankoff would definitely say so. I think it does. I think, you know, South Korea is immensely wealthy and North Koreans know that. That means that socially speaking, the regime has to keep a very, very tight grip on the country. Mm. And when you have such a tightly controlled society, it is very difficult to reform the economy. Um, you know, there are lots of economic costs and uh, impediments posed by keeping people strictly within their, you know, strictly within a certain area in which they're allowed to live, their province or a county, you know, the, the whole, they have this uh, thing, what do they call it? What's the official term? Like the, the travel, the order, the travel order, your angels. Mm. So, you know, the whole sort of like, you have the well, whole... Yeah, a per- Permit to leave your province or something. Right, you need permits permits to leave your province. You know, there's a strict and tight control over information inside the country. And not all information is, you know, about Kim family. There's a lot of information out there which could be very helpful for people who want to start businesses Mm -hmm. and who want to innovate. And the regime is quite serious about science and technology and innovation. But they still, they don't let their people access the internet and really useful sources of information remain completely cut off from North Korean people. So there's a lot of costs associated with that level of social control. Well, let's talk a bit about... About uh, agricultural reforms and farmers, because that's a big thing, obviously. North Korea is still, well, actually, just a broad question throwing out here, ballpark figure. What percentage of the North Korean economy is is farming, is agriculture? My memory, 20%, but okay. I'm, I'm not absolutely certain. Uh, what can farmers do now and what can agricultural cooperatives do now that they weren't able to do before? How's, how's that working out? So I went to a collective farm while I was there mm. and uh, we met a model family and me being me, I... I of course, I immediately brought up economic reforms, um, and I asked him without using the word reforms. No, of course, it's put on damdang chigim right? So it's the like the field responsibility system, and you know it's the correct ideological term. You like so, what does it mean? And you know, he says we conserve collective uh, collective uh, management whilst you know providing better incentives or something like that. And then you're like, oh, okay. And I heard that. So what percentage of what what percentage of what you produce do you give to the state? And he said forty percent. Now, might be wrong. Uh, we've heard 70% elsewhere. We have no way. We don't know. 
Where was this collective farm in? Uh, it's the Migok Hyeptong Nongjang. So it's uh, it's in Hwangye. It'll be it'll near Sariwon. But so what that means is, so you'll have a plan. The state will give you a target. You fulfill it. You obtain, you give a certain percentage of your fulfillment of what you fulfill to the state. You keep the rest, uh, and you can sell it on the market. You eat it. Do whatever you want with it. And then you'll have your own private plot. Uh, and the farm will also have the right to engage in other forms of economic activity on the side, so-called buop. So, you know, the farm might start its own greenhouse on some wasteland or wherever. You know, farmers will also have their own private plots at home and they'll produce stuff on that. They decide what they produce. Um, and all of that all of that is decided at the farm level. And farmers get to decide what they do with what they produce outside of their plan. To a certain extent, weren't there always private plots and farmers were always allowed to have a little surplus on the side to either use by them for themselves or, or give to somebody or trade or barter or maybe even sell? So what really is new here? Is it just the amounts that are new? So what is new, first of all, is that, uh, first, first of all, the work team has been shrunk. So the number of people who work together for a plan is much, much smaller. Although I heard the, the guy who I talked to said it was the work team hasn't changed. I've, you know, there are other sources that say differently, including inside the country. And if that is true, wouldn't that mean that there are suddenly you know, large amounts of people effectively jobless roaming the countryside looking for work? No, it just means that uh, the number of people who work in one team is smaller. So they're, you know, they're more in, there's more incentive to work hard. If you're working with your family, you work harder, you farm more, you produce more. You Next, you're paying effectively a tax to the state and keep the rest, as opposed to what used to happen, which was everything you produced went to the state and then the state gave you a ration. Mm. And the ration was fixed regardless of what you produced. Okay, now, which meant that the, the incentives were low, so the output was low. Right. right? This so, is that old joke about Richard Nixon going to China and he's taken to see a large factory and he says to uh, Mao, Mao Zedong or the other one, uh, Zhao Enlai, he says, uh, oh, this is a, it's a huge factory. How many people work here? And Zhao Enlai says, hmm, about half. <laughs> it's very good. Uh, so, yeah, it's, it's exactly that. So you have a problem with, uh, you know, you have a problem with a lot of free riders. Loads of people are just not working very right. hard. And then you have a problem with the fact that the state's going to give you the same regardless of what you do. So what's the point of working hard? So now with the small teams and more autonomy over what they're allowed to do with the surplus, uh, you're saying that there's actually more output and, and there's more work being done. They get to control their surplus. At least that's the principle. In practice, of course, there's a lot of rent seeking. There's a lot of theft. There's a lot of bribery. All that. I've heard... You know, you hear stories. But at least in principle, what they're doing now is they're saying to farmers, whatever you produce, you get to keep a percentage. So produce as much as you can. So that's one way things have changed. Another way is at the farm level, the, the overall farm level. Farms have been given freedom to to invest in different areas. So, you know, obviously you'll still have your plan to produce rice or corn, but on the side, you know, you can borrow money and start a greenhouse. Households have been, I've heard that private plots may have been expanded. I'm not sure about that, but at least... They're, what you farm, there's no limit on what you're allowed to sell and how you sell it, right? So in the past, there were bans on the sale of grain in private markets. Those grain, those bans no longer exist. So if I, you know, farm corn or rice, once upon a time, if I farmed that, I couldn't sell it at the market legally and I could be subject to sanction. Now, there is no such ban. Now, if um, these farms are able to, uh, to borrow money from private individuals in order to invest in something, uh, that has a lot of knock-on effects, right? It also means that they're obliged to pay back these loans, that governments will somehow, if not guarantee, at least help enforcing. Um, are there debt collectors? I mean, what what do we know about the corollaries of any of this? Unfortunately, is, we don't bankruptcy, is, that a, is bankruptcy a thing now in North Korea? Like what if, you know, you borrow money to build a greenhouse, but then there's a, a bad hailstorm and the greenhouse is destroyed and that state under enterprise can't pay back the money. And can they then appeal to bankruptcy court? I mean, there's so much. It, it 
I'm getting excited just thinking about it. I don't uh, even me like too. economics. Me too. I'm, I'm really excited. No, as in. What I can tell you is that these issues are not discussed in practical terms in open access publications. Mm. What that means is they don't ever ref- reference cases, but they do talk about these issues in abstract. So we can see that these issues probably do exist because there are professors at, you know, Kim Il-sung University and in the social sciences, sorry, the Academy of Social Sciences, who are writing articles for North Korean legal uh, journals about, you know, uh, tort violations and all that kind of stuff, contract-related stuff, liability, um, bankruptcy, although not individual bankruptcy. I've not seen anything. Uh, But, you know, these issues are discussed, but only in abstract because they are highly sensitive. Okay, now what about the retail sector? You've got state enterprises running shops in Pyongyang. Is it decentralizing? What's happening in the retail sector in general? The retail sector is, yes, it's very, at least it appears to be very, very decentralized. So you have order contracts and you have sales contracts, and they are basically two sides of the same coin. An order contract is where you uh, order something, and a sales contract is where you agree to sell something. You either agree to sell something to another state-owned enterprise, or uh, your enterprise agrees to sell it to uh, sell it uh, through or to a shop. Um, And yeah, the sales contracts are are big in the North Korean economy, at least it looks like it. And the reason why I say so is because you look at the drink stands and you go to the shops and you see a wide range of products produced by loads of different factories. Let let me just uh, throw out a a hypothetical there. Imagine you're a state-owned enterprise and you want to open your own dedicated shop rather than selling a little bit in somebody else's shop. Do you pay rent to rent a premises? Um, Is there a uh, a company you can go to to deck out the interior of your shop and make it look all nice? Are there sign writers? I mean, well, how does that work? No, all of those things. So, um, I, I Who do they pay rent to, for starters? You, you, you asked three great questions. Yeah. So first of all, rent is paid to the state, and it also will be paid to people who are maybe leasing, actually leasing you the land. So it could be the local people's committee. It could be the person who actually, if you're renting premises, it might be the person who has nominal owner, you know, whose enterprise has usage rights over the over the premises. Signs? Absolutely. I, I, don't, know, I don't know how vague I have to be in reference to this, but um, I met someone who was making something like a sign uh, for their enterprise while I was there. Um, and I asked them how they did it. And they said, oh, we just contact the designers. We draft an order contract. They they put the thing together. We look at the product. We pay. It's as simple as that. Um, and that's done. That's a state enterprise to state enterprise transaction. There's no price committee involved. There's no planning committee involved. Your department inside your enterprise will get permission. It will will issue permission to do that, and then the sub department, the thing that's underneath it, will do that. So that that was what was the other one? What was the last question? Uh, interior decorating. Interior. Oh my god, that's such a great question. So while I was inside the country, I saw loads of shops that were selling interior decoration stuff. I initially saw it and I thought, you know, in South Korea, if I'm reading this correctly, and I think I was, this says construction materials, mm. and no, it meant everything. Everything that goes into construction, from bricks to wallpaper to every fixture that goes in Shelving, there. display cabinets, the whole deal. Okay. Seems so. And there are shops all over Pyongyang selling this stuff. So is the mood there pretty upbeat in terms of uh, we've had these two summits and uh, things are looking good for the North Korean economy? The mood there was very upbeat. Everything is obviously thanks to uh, you know the marshal, uh, Kim Jong-un. But the thing about... The United States, there was a lot of, you know, I would, a bit of a shit stirrer, so I would obviously ask them about why the posters have come down and why there are no anti-American posters, why there's no reference to, uh, you know, anti-American references in the newspapers. And my guides grinned and they said, oh, you noticed. And I'm like, yeah, I did. And I said, because we're in a new era of relations with the United States and relations are improving and our country 
you know, when we it reflects the new mood, as it were. What's the uh, the growth rate of North Korea's economy, and how is that measured? Well, how's it measured? Um, so uh, the Bank of Korea released some statistics a couple of days ago, and I think it was minus three point seven percent in twenty seventeen, or something like that. So it's actually shrinking then. That's what they said. Whether that's drawn up, we don't know. It's a very it's extremely rough estimate. Uh, so North Korea releases no stats. No, they probably have statistics. How reliable they are, we don't know. And given that uh, Kim Jong-un gave a speech in 2015 where he said the state budget was just uh, an empty piece of paper, I think is what he said. He said that, uh, which is very exciting, which I was very excited to read. We would imagine their statistics aren't very good either. Their economy did shrink last year, so far as the Bank of Credit is concerned, and they're the only people who And would that be a result of sanctions or anything else? Probably sanctions, yeah. So what's your sense of the lives of ordinary North Koreans and, you know, are, are they getting better? How's that? How does the economy intersect with the life of an average, an average North Korean outside Pyongyang? I think that things are better now than they've been for a very long time. Maybe they were better a couple of years ago than they are now, but that's mainly because of sanctions. The average person is not interested in high politics, and they're quite happy to just leave it alone. So, you know, purges that have occurred at the elite level don't really concern the average person. Economically speaking, at least from my understanding, the, the system, the country is much is doing much better than it was even 10 years ago and a lot better than 20 years ago. Uh, obviously, if they can fix, there are a lot of things they need to fix and it's a very, very poor country, but that, you know, it's got great potential is what I want to say. It has uh, great potential. Can the economy continue to grow without external inputs like foreign direct investment, joint ventures, acquisitions and that kind of thing? It is the question. It's not a question. It's the question. Uh, it's a very, very important question. And it's something I've been talking to people about for a while because it's a question I'm very concerned about. And I imagine you're very concerned about yeah. too. We're all very concerned about it. Um, and, you know, as much as the North Koreans love to talk about self-reliance and mm. the many iterations they have of the term, the general perception is that uh, North Korea's institutional environment creates an upper bound uh, on economic growth for a number of reasons. One reason is that without foreign capital, the country will only go so far, or, which is the crux of your question, how, much, how far can they go? And uh, another reason is that, uh, you know, they don't, they, they don't have a, a reservoir of trust at home. And, you know, a lot of people will continue to stuff money under their mattresses. Uh, so there's a lot of money that will go wasted or unused, lots of capital that will go unused. But another, another thing is that the system itself is quite wasteful, you know, as in they have this vast army that's basically a lot of wasted human talent and they continue to waste a lot of money on ridiculous or ridiculous is a bit too strong but well show pieces really isn't it yeah. show pieces and 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 shows right the spectacle of of statehood the spectacle of statehood and you would you would you'd think that if they took some of the money they spend on you know like for instance like doing up the rugyong or you know some of the construction projects in pyongyang some of which i'm sure are very good you know some of those apartments i've been inside them they're, they're nice and all but you know if you if you took some of that money away from, you know, making the lives of, you know, the relatively speaking, the elite plush and instead spend it on roads or railways or on, you know, uh, better uh, electricity grid. Imagine, imagine what you could do yeah. inside that country. And they're not. Or at least then, you know, there, there seems to be a lot of conspicuous waste. So is there a danger to Kim Jong-un and his system if the economy grows too fast? Or too much. So this was an argument I think that Kwang Jung Yup made back in the late nineties and early two thousands. That I'm not sure if it was Hwang. I remember. I think it was Hwang Jung Yup, which is the idea that you know you keep the people in subjection by keeping them hungry. You know, and as if people's bellies get too filled, they'll start to ask questions and they'll start to say, "Well, now my immediate economic needs to be met. What about my political and social needs?" 
I don't know. I think of North Korea, when I was there this time, I felt like I was in a theocracy. You know, and it, it's like you would never, you would never question, you would never mock Muhammad in Saudi Arabia. You would never question the divinity of Allah in Iran. You just wouldn't do it. And if you do, you're stupid and you'll be shoved on a plane. And if you're lucky, you're shoved on a plane, you leave the country. If you're not, you know, much worse. Um, and it felt like that this time. Personally, I think that if they can unleash the forces of economic growth, it'll be good for the people and the regime will probably survive and adapt and change. That's what I hope for. And I think it's our best bet at this point, because the alternative is probably the system exploding, something, you know, nuclear weapons potentially being used, a lot of people dying either way, foreign interventions. It's going to be really, really messy if that system collapses. So what we're going to hope for is evolution and gradual change. I hope we can find a way to make that country grow and grow rapidly because I want those people to have better lives and if it has to be under the Kim family regime then so be it so long as so long as they're eating so people so long as people are eating better and living better I can live with them living under the Kim, uh, the Kim family regime and I think it's better than state collapse and bloody mayhem but maybe I'm a bit too cynical and a bit too old okay well thank you uh, Peter Ward for joining us today on the NK News podcast we hope to have you here again in the near future don't forget listeners you can listen to all our shows as well as read full bios and show notes on our website nknews.org and if you're a uh, subscriber you can even read some of the pieces that uh, Peter Ward wrote uh, NK News is the leading repository of North Korean research news and analysis and we hope to see you there and you can send feedback comments questions or guest suggestions to podcast at nknews.org our podcast was produced as always by Arius Dare and facilitated by Chatter Carroll and Christina Lee. Lastly, a reminder that one random reviewer per week will win a free NK News membership, so please review us after listening and you might win. Also, you can save $50 off your NK News subscription by using the code podcast at the checkout. And now, really, lastly, lastly, uh, share this podcast with your friends, whether you enjoy it or not, because if we don't hit 5,000 subscribers by the end of this year, I might move to become a fisherman in North Korea. Thank you and listen again next time. <laughs>